Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. One week ago, we gathered here in this sanctuary to celebrate with Christian believers, brothers and sisters around the world, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Friday evening, as we flowed into the sanctuary, there was a mood of solemnity in the air. It was a deeply meaningful time, reflective, a time to meditate. The time came in the service when we left the sanctuary and went out to participate in washing one another's feet. But outside the sanctuary, there was a cross that stood in dirt, a place where people could write on red pieces of paper sins they needed to confess to the Father. They were there on the nails on the cross. The cross was soon covered. And then they could stand barefoot in the dirt, could pray in different places outside, have their feet washed, and then come back into the sanctuary and meditate more deeply on His Word and the music certainly challenged our hearts but was a meditative tone. We left rather quietly that evening, pensive and thoughtful about the sacrifice of Jesus, about Jesus' body lying in a stone-cold tomb. And then we returned Sabbath morning. And on Sabbath morning, there was a very different feel in the air. The first thing many noticed as they walked up to the sanctuary was the cross still stood, but now instead of being red, it was white. It was a wash in white papers, now representing sins forgiven, cleansed, restored by the grace and the presence of God. And then we came into the sanctuary, and those of you who were here will remember, from word to music to prayer, the song lifting us heavenward, the music lifting us into the presence of God, and that ringing affirmation that Christ is risen, He is risen indeed. Profound experience. It's the kind of experience, the kind of worship experience from which you walk away and say, well, what else is there? In fact, I heard from many of you Many of you who spoke of how deeply meaningful last weekend's services were, and I keep trying to point you to Pastor Christian, our pastor for music and worship, and his team who together, along with our media crew, led us in that experience in deeply meaningful ways. I want to read you one among many messages I received, both verbally and via email, one email that someone in our congregation wrote. I would like to express appreciation for this last week's Easter services. I've attended LLUC for over 40 years and consider all the communion services that I have attended to be excellent. I very rarely miss one. 
I don't want to compare the quality of all the services I have attended. However, I was very moved by these two services. I was touched by the presence of the Holy Spirit, by standing with my shoes off at the cross, by walking up to the cross and nailing my burdens of sin on the cross, by stepping back and reflecting on what had just happened. To view others, some with canes, one with a walker, approach the cross was a very moving experience. Also, to come back on Sabbath morning and view the cross covered in white was very moving. It is almost impossible to describe this to anyone not present. I will continue praying for our church's ministry, a friend in Christ, Bob Fuller. I resonate with what Bob wrote because it was the underlying meaning of the event that was so powerful. It caused me to go back again and think of that early Sunday morning so many years ago when a broken, open tomb changed everything. The different gospel writers all give their accounts of what it was that happened there, but as you read of the appearances of Jesus post-resurrection, you cannot escape the fact that these believers, these followers, these disciples were staggering and stumbling around in total awe, astonishment, and wonder at what had just happened. How could it be, they asked. It changed everything to stand at that open, broken tomb and realize that He is risen, He is risen indeed, not only changed their lives, it changed the lives of all to come. We entered a new era. Because of that, you can understand why someone would ask, now what? You come to a worship service and have a magnificent and deeply spiritual experience, and you walk out and you wonder, wow, now what? Does it get better in terms of worship than that? Now what? Well, then just imagine what it would have been for them. We have been following the footsteps of Jesus throughout this series through his final week. We have sensed the tension as it built. We have sensed his sorrow as we lingered with him in Gethsemane, viewing with holy awe the battle for the planet. We've stood there on Calvary and seen what we humans have done to him in the crucifixion and what God has done for us in the cross. As magnificent as each step has been, it has been equally solemn. It has deepened me to study this yet again to experience those days and those hours once more. But having said all of that, there is nothing that matches the sublime experience of standing at an empty tomb. It is empty. It is broken. Hallelujah. And then you walk away asking, now what? How can you match that? What comes after that? It's a question I ask as I look at what the gospel writers said about 
the resurrection of Jesus. Each gospel writer tells certain elements that are very similar. For example, they all talk about early that first day of the week, early morning as it was moving toward dawn, the women head for the tomb. They all tell of that in generally similar terms. But then each gospel writer adds something, adds a nuance, adds an experience, adds a story that the others don't add. So each gives us his own glimpse. Mark, for example. Mark's is really the shortest tale to tell. That is, if you take the shorter ending of the Gospel of Mark, you will notice that in your Bibles when you look at Mark 16 that there is a shorter ending. Many scholars believe that's where the Gospel ended. If you read that, then it ends very abruptly. It says the women came to the tomb. They heard the news. He's not here. He's risen. They never see the risen Christ, but they turn and they leave that place, and the Gospel ends saying they were very afraid. Some have thought that's too abrupt of an ending. So maybe a scribe, an editor, came along and added the longer ending, which you will also find in your Bibles. And it very well may be authentic, especially because much of its content matches the other gospel writers. If you take that, then Mark adds to it. He talks about other appearances. There's a commission of what they are to go and do. That's Mark. Then you look at Luke. Luke, with some of the same elements, tells the story, but then Luke adds something that the other gospel writers don't have. He says a bit later that first day of the week, two of them are traveling, journeying on the way to Emmaus when they're joined by this stranger who engages them in conversation and begins to ask questions about the weekend that leave them asking, who, who are you? Where have you been? You missed everything that just happened? They don't recognize him until the moment comes when he breaks bread before them and prays. And in that moment, they recognize him. The rest of the tale is them panting and falling and stumbling in the darkness as they race back to the other disciples to tell them, he is risen. And while they're running, they keep saying to each other, didn't our hearts just burn within us while he was opening to us the Scriptures? That's Luke. And then John. Some of the same elements. But then John adds this. He says the disciples are hunkered down, locked in for fear of who's out there and who may come for them. And Jesus appears. And he tells them, my hands, my feet. And they are in awe. They're all there. Well, not quite. Thomas isn't there. And so when they tell Thomas what occurred, he said, no, 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 no. No way. I will not believe that unless I, unless I can. No, no, no. I'm not going to believe. A week later, Jesus reappears, says to Thomas, come here a minute, Thomas. I want to show you something. And Thomas falls on his knees and says, My Lord and my God. And Jesus says, Thomas, Thomas, <laughs> because you have seen, you believe. Blessed are those who have not seen and still believe. And so each writer adds his nuance, his story, 
the appearances of Jesus. There appear to be at least a dozen of them in many different contexts. But they all leave me asking that one same question. What now? After all the grandeur of resurrection morning, now what? So I go to Matthew's gospel for that. Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28, as Lauren told us in the Scripture reading, page 1487 in your pew Bibles. And I read here what may be the most compelling answer to the now what question. Matthew's quite brief. He tells us the story of the resurrection, the women, the empty tomb. He tells us that the chief, lead, chief religious leaders paid off the guards so that they would spread a story. And then he immediately goes to one last paragraph, and it's that paragraph that we read this morning. Matthew 28, starting in verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. What now, Jesus? How do you follow up an empty, broken tomb? And Jesus answers that question in four words. Four words. Go and make disciples. Go and make disciples. Now, that word disciples appears twice in this passage. The first time, it is, it is referring to his followers, immediate followers, to his disciples. It says in verse 16, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where he had told them he would meet them. Disciples. And so they are the ones who have been with him. They are now responding to and obeying what he had told them to do after his resurrection. Disciples. But then the second time it appears, a, the, a different form, but the same basic root word appears in verse 19 when he says to them now, go and make disciples. So you have disciples who have followed him, and now the disciples who have followed them, him are being told, now you go and make disciples. That's what you do in light of the resurrection. So maybe we'd better define our term, disciple. What is the meaning of that word disciple? I suppose we could define that in a couple of ways. One way would be to read a definition, read a description of what the word means. So we'll start with that. I read to you from a scholar named D.A. Carson, who's writing about this very passage, writing and trying to explain what's happening in the passage, but at the same time trying to define the term disciple. So this is what Carson says. The main emphasis, that is in this passage, the main emphasis is on the command to make disciples, which in Greek is one word, mathetusade, one word, make disciples. To disciple a person to Christ is to bring him into the relation of pupil to teacher, taking his yoke of authoritative instruction, 
accepting what he says as true because he says it, and submitting to his requirements as right because he makes them. Disciples are those who hear, understand, and obey Jesus' teaching. So a disciple is a pupil to a teacher. Christ is inviting people into his classroom of discipleship. A disciple is one who learns. In fact, the Greek word mathetes, translated disciple, literally means learner. A disciple is an apprentice to a master, to a teacher. So what is disciple? A learner, an apprentice. That's one way we could define it, to read what the word actually means. But there's a second way we could define what it means to be a disciple. And that is a story. A story. It's a story that comes from early in the years of Anita's in my marriage. Early. Yesterday, we completed 32 years of marriage. We were... <laughs> I know that in your hearts your applause is for her, and I agree. <laughs> we were married at, what was it, 12, 13, something like that. <laughs> so early in our marriage, now I have to give you a bit of background to the story. I share this at times with my students in class. A bit of background, and that background starts with my parents. Now, my parents grew up in a very different world, certainly, than which kids grow up today, but a different world even than the one in which Anita and I grew up, probably in a whole range of ways, but I'm thinking about one specifically. And that was my parents grew up in a world where roles were very clearly defined. I'm talking about male, female roles, husband, wife roles. Those were very clearly defined. They each knew what role they were to fulfill. I don't ever remember my mother and father having conflict. They had conflict over other things, like any normal couple, but I never remember them having conflict over roles. I don't ever remember my dad standing at the door saying, Betty, when are you going to mow that lawn? And the oil needs changing in the car too. When are you going to do that? Never remember that. I never have any memory of my mom saying to my dad, are you going to make a souffle for dinner? That never happened, just so we're clear. Very clear about roles, which meant that when we traveled, which we did fairly often because of my parents' work as missionaries, that dad took care of everything. That was just the reality. They didn't have any argument about it. I don't think they ever even had a conversation about it. They didn't think about it. We didn't think about it. Which meant that if we were driving, say, for example, when we lived in Guatemala, if we were driving down to Panama through Central America, every few hours you crossed another border. You had to take all the paperwork and go inside and get everything stamped and work everything through, then come back, get in the car, drive across the border, and now go do it all again on the other side. Dad always took care of that. Never a conversation about it. Just expected. No conflict. They didn't think about it. Mom didn't. Dad didn't. I didn't. Until I grew up and married a travel agent. <laughs> then I thought about it. Because I can distinctly remember those early trips. 
Anita managing a travel agency, Milford and Cheryl Harrison managing a travel agency, and we would go to the airport, and I would say, you remember, you remember the time when they actually had tickets? You know, we actually took a ticket to the airport, and I would say, uh, where are the tickets? And she'd say, why? Well, well I need the tickets. Why do you need the tickets? Well, I need to go up and get Why do you need to do that? Because I'm the man. I mean, just, <clears throat> just let me have the tickets. And we're having conflict, conflict over this. Now, if you had pressed me at the time, even I, had I been honest, which I wasn't ready to be yet, had I been honest, I would have said, this is crazy. Because where are the tickets? She said, I made those tickets. <laughs> I know. But let me have... So here we're at the counter, and I'm trying to do this, and she's saying, but, you know... handle this. And then she would slide her business card across the counter. Now, back in those days, this is no longer true, but back in those days, you got some perks, Milford, didn't you? When you were a travel agency, those things happened. She would slide it across the counter, and the agent behind the desk would say, oh, I've upgraded you to business class. It's like, whoa. And so the next time, since my mama didn't raise no fools, we would get there, and I would say, you know, come, come, come up. And she said, no, 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 you handle it. No, 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 come up here. She said, no, 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 you're the man. <laughs> Don't be that way. Jesus wouldn't want you to do that. And all this is going on. I'm thinking, why are we having conflict about this? This is crazy, except for one thing. There is a reality about doing life together that causes whatever the leader, the teacher, the parent to do, as much as you may be unaware of it, to slowly seep in and begin to affect who you are, what you are, how you think, what you do, the way in which you approach life. And then suddenly, years later, you face that situation, and what was modeled for you comes out and is lived out. Some ways, that can be a challenge. In some ways, that can be a blessing. And that's a disciple. That's a learner, a pupil, an apprentice. And that's what Jesus did with his disciples, with his followers. He said, come go with me, walk with me, live with me, listen to me, learn from me. And slowly but surely, who I am will begin to take root within you and change you. I read to you the words from the pen of Ellen White, book Desire of Ages. Notice how he approached this matter. Listen, it was by personal contact and association. Personal contact and association. In other words, let's do life together. It was by personal contact and association that Jesus trained his disciples. Sometimes he taught them, sitting among them on the mountainside, sometimes beside the sea, or walking with them by the way. He revealed the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Listen to this. He did not command his disciples to do this or that, but said, follow me. In other words, come with me. Come walk with me. Let's do life together. 
On his journeys through the country and cities, he took them with him that they might see how he taught the people. He linked their interest with his, and they united with him in his work. Did you catch those phrases? By personal contact and association, they were with him. Personal contact, being together, conversing, observing, listening, learning, growing, and slowly but surely, they were being changed because they did life together. Or that other line, he did not command his disciples to do this or that, but he said, follow me, saying the same thing. Come and do life with me. Come and learn from me in all the different circumstances and situations that life brings our way. And so for these disciples, these pupils, these learners, these apprentices, because they walked with him, lived with him, learned from him, all that they would later do would be influenced by that reality. Disciples. The text says, <clears throat> then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, met him on a mountain. But it appears a second time as he's answering that question that must have lingered in the air for them because as you read the resurrection appearances of Jesus, there is this sense in which they're wanting to grab on and hold him. Please be with us in the way you were with us before. That's most evident when Mary sees him at the empty tomb and when he says to her, Mary, and she turns around and it's the Lord and she grabs him and he says, Mary, you can't hold on to me because I'm going to ascend to the Father. I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to give you the Spirit, but you can't hold on to me and have me as you once did. You get that sense as you read the appearances and so they must have been asking, okay, Lord, then, then what do we do then? Four words. Go and make disciples. What I have done with you, now you go and do with them. What has been you and me, now I want to be you and me and that other person. And I want that just to continue to grow and expand as you go and make disciples. This passage has by the church, and even by translators, probably in your translation, this has a heading that wasn't in the original text, but which has been added. It is called the Great Commission. Go and make disciples. We haven't done so good with that. In fact, honestly, we haven't even done so good with the first one, our own discipleship. In fact, sometimes it seems like our focus and our emphasis is on being a member, the member of a local congregation. I don't think Jesus has anything against membership. It's a wonderful reality that causes us to share in a community, but that's not the gospel's goal. The reason we... I think that we often think membership is where we need to be, is that we will go through a process to get there, whether it's all these young ones up here on the platform this morning or somebody coming new to the faith. There's a certain teaching that takes place as we grow and learn and understand, coming to that point where we are baptized, and now we're members of the community. And at that point, 
It's so easy for it to stop. We've arrived. That's not discipleship. Sometimes people ask, what is discipleship? We hear it talked about a lot. What is it? I define it with one simple phrase. Discipleship is a lifelong, life-changing journey with Jesus. It's a lifelong, life-changing journey with Jesus. It's doing life together with Jesus. We haven't always done that so well. Let me ask you some questions. I want to preface that by saying I don't ask questions to shame you if they're not answered the way you wish they were, nor to stroke your ego if they are answered the way you're glad they're answered. I rather ask these questions just for, for, for assessment purposes, to do a personal inventory. So just think in your own mind about this. Questions first about your discipleship. How much time have you spent this week with Jesus? Just you and Jesus through his word. How much time have you spent with him? How much time have you dedicated to prayer this week? Slipping to your knees in the early morning or late at night? Or walking with an open channel of communication? How much time in prayer? How is Jesus changing you? How's he changed you in the last few weeks, the last few months? Were we to ask someone to whom you're close, a spouse, a parent, a child, a roommate, whoever it might be, were we to ask that person about you? Is John more patient this year than he was a year ago? Is Mary more kind this year than she was last year? Is there evidence of growth in grace, of deepening in the Spirit? Is transformation happening? We need to ask ourselves those questions at times, assessing where the Holy Spirit might be working or needing to work in our lives. It's not about membership, arriving and now we belong. As valuable as that might be, what it's really about is discipleship, a lifelong, life-changing journey with Jesus. And then a second set of questions. After all, when Jesus answers that unspoken and now what question, four words, go and make disciples. So let me ask you, when was the last time you shared openly with someone else about what Jesus is doing in your life? When was the last time you said, let me tell you a story about what he's done for me? When was the last time you invited someone to join you in a Bible study, to, to join you in a prayer time, to join you in a worship service? The last time that you said, I, I'd like to share my life with you, if you're open to that, Share how God is working in my heart. I'd love to hear how he's working in yours. When was the last time you invited somebody who doesn't know Jesus? Responding to Jesus' directive, when Jesus says, you know, it's been you and me, that's critical, it's vital, that's your discipleship journey. But when was the last time you said, Jesus, I'm going to invite Mary, I'm going to invite Joe, it's going to be three of us now. 
at times. We're going to walk together. When was the last time? We call this the Great Commission, this passage. And yet the Christian philosopher, the late Dallas Willard, when he wrote about this, he called it the Great Omission. The Great Omission because he says non-discipleship is the elephant in the church. We don't talk about the fact that we don't grow and change in the way Jesus intends us to grow and change. We don't take it seriously enough, he said. So rather than the great commission, it's the great omission. So after we stand at the empty tomb, after our hearts are filled with the wonder and the glory of the risen Christ, now what? Go and make disciples. Leroy Imes. Leroy Imes was a, a Christian teacher and leader and disciple-maker and writer. He writes in one place about a conversation he had with a missionary. This missionary had gone to another land, had gone with a specific express intent of, of making disciples in that place. But he went with a very clear mindset about how that was to be done. This is what it says in the book. we got to go by the book. These are the formulas. You do this, you'll get this. He was very clear on that. And then his visa status changed, and he had to return home. Before that happened, he and Imes had a conversation. I want you to listen to Leroy Imes' words as he describes that conversation with this soon-to-return-home missionary. He told me a story, said Imes. He told me a story that still haunts me. I can't get it out of my mind. He had gone overseas some 15 years before we met and began the usual programs. About the time he arrived on the field, he met a young man named Johnny who was involved in something quite different. Johnny was a committed disciple of Jesus Christ, but he was going about his ministry in all the wrong ways according to the, quote, book, unquote. In contrast to the typical missionary approach, Johnny was just spending the bulk of his time meeting with a few young men in that country, just hanging out with them, just doing life together. The veteran missionary tried to get Johnny straightened out, but the young man kept on with his different approach. The years passed, and the veteran missionary now had to leave the country of his service due to new visa restrictions. As he sat across the coffee table from me in his home, he told me, Leroy, I've got little to show for my time here. Oh, there's a group of people who meet in our assembly, but I wonder what will happen to them when I leave. They aren't disciples. They've been faithful in listening to my sermons, but they don't witness. Few of them know how to lead another person to Christ. They know nothing about discipling others. And now that I'm leaving, I can see that I've all but wasted my time here. Then I look at what has come out of Johnny's life. One of the men he worked with is now a professor at the university. This man is mightily used of God to reach and train scores of university students. Another is leading a witnessing and discipling team of about 40 young men and women. 
Another's in a nearby city with a group of 35 growing disciples around him. Three have gone to other countries as missionaries and are now leading teams who are multiplying disciples. God is blessing their work. I see the contrast between my life and Johnny's, and it is tragic. I was so sure I was right. What he was doing seemed so insignificant, just doing life together. But now I look at the results, and they are staggering. What were those lines from Desire of Ages? He didn't command them what to do. Just said, follow me. He invited them to participate with him in his ministry. And he transformed their lives. And their lives transformed the world. We would not be here today did not those 11 disciples take seriously who they were. We're disciples. And take seriously to the answer to that, and now what question? Go and make disciples. That's why you're here. That's why I'm here. Because they took him at his word. They went out. Yes, they preached. Yes, they taught. But they lived in community. Their lives rubbed up against each other. They did life together. We have such a deep desire, your pastoral leadership at this church, such a deep desire that such might be true in our lives together that we might not have an evangelism program, but that we might live evangelistically, that we might not have something that commands and has all kinds of bells and whistles, but that we might have something that becomes woven into the fabric of our common life. Come and do life with us. Come over to my house. Let's go play ball together. Let's go watch the game. Let's work together. Let's allow our lives time to rub up against each other, and maybe the Jesus that is within me will end up rubbing off on you. Maybe you will find, as so many of us children did, that years later, suddenly when we're in a, a, a certain circumstance, what our disciple maker wove into our lives is suddenly real and lived. That's what we yearn for. We understand there is a place for programs. There is a place for that. But that cannot be the reality, the heart of what we do. Because the truth is, I concluded long ago that what it takes to get them is what it takes to keep them. If you're going to have a lot of bells and whistles to draw them in, then as soon as the bells and whistles are gone, so are they. But if it's your life and your life and your life, in my life. They know us. I'm looking forward to seeing you, Sabbath. Sit with me. Looking forward to serving God together in our outreach program. Work with me. Want to be a part of the Bible study? Study with me. Last year, Pastor Roy wrote an excellent piece, small book, 12 People You Love, still available. Here in a couple of weeks, we're going to come back and we're going to continue that process, encouraging you just to allow those kinds of people in your lives to know more about your love for Jesus. 
Because that's what comes after the resurrection. The resurrection and the empty tomb then leads to disciple-making. And when Jesus is risen in our hearts and lives, when we have new life, that leads to disciple-making. And so we have followed him step by step through this final week, through those final hours, at times with anger, at times with tears, at times with brokenness. But make no mistake about it, that journey ends at an empty tomb. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And now what? Well, now what is this? the final week of his life can actually become the first week of someone else's life through you as you invite them to join you as a disciple of Jesus, doing life together, walking with him on a lifelong, life-changing journey. That's discipleship, and that is our task.